Thank you, Ben, for reading our text for today. And again, welcome to fellowship. If you are new here, again, we just want you to know how glad we are that you are here and hope and pray that you have been welcomed and that you will be blessed uh, by being a part of our service uh, today. We are, uh, we've been, uh, our church has been working through the book of Acts. And uh, so uh, that reading there in, in Acts chapter 12 is where we are as we've been working our way through this book. And today we're going to be looking at this story, this account um, in the book of Acts. And, and, and as we look at it, you'll see if you've already, if you've already noticed that it has both a tragedy and rescue uh, with it. Uh, and, and this story really did reveal something. And we'll see this, I think, as I work through it today, um, that it, this story really revealed something about the way uh, that we all think about things, especially in life. One of those is that we like explanations for things. And uh, just think about yourself. Have you noticed that about yourself, like that you like uh, explanations for things, questions of why uh, we like answers for them? And so I was looking this up and just reading a little bit more uh, about this. And I, and I read some of what uh, psychology today has to say about this topic. And, and no, I, I don't see their material as, as being my authority or, or even super reliable. But here's what some of what they uh, say uh, about us as, as humans when it comes to how we think. The author uh, I was reading said that humans are, are basically meaning-seeking creatures. And, and because of this, we need to know why things happen. He said, why is what drives not only everything we do, but also our emotional reactions to everything that happens to us. And then, and then the author concluded, we're simply far more likely to accept a change if we understand the reason for it. And, and that's probably true uh, for, for most of us in, in a lot of different situations in our, in our life. Like we will respond to things and people will ask us things. But we'll say why. We, we want to know the why. But how does that apply when it comes to God? How does that apply when it comes to God? Do, do, we, do we tell God, do we say to God, hey God, you know, I'd be, I just want you to know that I'd be far more likely to accept what you're doing in my life if you just explain some things to me. And then God, of course, would sit down and say, oh yes, let me do that for you. <laughs> and, and so we see this, uh, this, this uh, truth and it plays out in the rest of our life, but we got to be careful about how we apply this to our creator, God. And, and so here's, here's the question that, uh, that I wanted to bring before you. Do you think God owes you an explanation? Just, I just want to plant that question early. We're going to come back to it later. But just think about that. Maybe there's something going on in your life and you're thinking, I really like to know why. So we'll come back to that. Let that just let the Holy Spirit kind of use that question to do what it is he wants to do in your life. And, and then we're going to come and look at this text. And, and in, in the text today, we're going to see that the Jerusalem church is going through a range of emotions. Uh, they face tragedy and then they follow that, but with a miraculous rescue. And again, it begs the question that we all ask, why God, what are you doing? 
And so let's pray and ask God to lead us as we look into this text. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is not just an ancient text, but that it is an authoritative text. It is, it is the, the revelation of God to humanity. And may we approach it that way. This isn't good advice. What we read, this is your very word revealed to humanity to know who you are, to know who we are, to know how we are to live, to know about eternal things. So we submit ourselves to your word. We ask you, Lord God, to do the work that only you can do in the lives and in the hearts of everyone that is here. Lord, I pray for each person that they would have a heart that is open, ears that are open to receive your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. So two weeks ago, we we left off in chapter 11, and we were looking at the Antioch church, and it was really the first Gentile church. Now what Luke does is we're, he's, again, he's informing us, he's, he's telling us about the beginnings of the early church. He's doing that with the Spirit of God guiding him, so he's telling us what we need to know. He's not leaving out things that he should have put in. And, and, and so we're trusting in, in the inspiration of the spirit here. And so Luke then brings us back to things that are happening in Jerusalem. So we're going to begin chapter 12. And, and he starts by telling us about the persecution of the church in Jerusalem. The persecution of the church in Jerusalem. So we stopped, we, remember a couple weeks ago, we saw how God is working and moving among the Gentiles in Antioch, but things are different in Jerusalem. Verse one, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Now about that time, what, what Luke means by that is he's referring to the time in which chapter 11 ended and, and saying around Around this time, around the time, we, remember we, we talked about the, the prophecy of the, of the famine. And, and so around this time, uh, and these happenings in Antioch, back in Jerusalem, Herod Agrippa I uh, was king of the region. Now, when you have a, a, a Jewish king, he's, he's not king over what's happening in Rome. He's under the authority of the, of the Roman Empire. He's been given limited authority, but he's still king. And, and so this Agrippa I, there's several Herods in, in Scripture. And so I want to explain a little bit more about who, who this was. Agrippa I was the grandson of, of Herod the Great. And Herod the Great was the king that slaughtered the babies trying to kill the Christ child. Remember what that, that story when, when Jesus was born? So he's the, he's the grandson of, of that Herod. And, and then Herod Antipas was a son of Herod the Great. And he was the Herod who killed John the Baptist. And, and so what, what, what you see here is that the Herods have been hostile to God and to his people for a long time. Aristobulus was the father of Agrippa I, and he was killed by Herod the Great, his father. So this is a really nice family. <laughs> it's the kind of family that you don't want to have any problems with. 
We're going to get into more detail in two weeks about uh, Agrippa. But for our purposes today, I just want you to know he's a real historical figure. It's one of the, one of the most unique things about Christianity is, is the fact that it's rooted in actual history. It's not just some religion that somebody came up with one day. It, it's rooted in the history of the world. And, and so this, this, this king was friendly with Rome. And he was friendly with Rome when it was helpful to him. And then he was friendly to the Jewish leaders when that was needed as well. So we would classify him as a really good politician. He did what he did. In, in terms of what Herod did, uh, Agrippa, he did what he did for his own aspirations. He cared really most about himself and the things and the decisions that he made, how would it advance his ambitions. And since persecuting the Christ followers, since that pleased the, the Jewish leaders, he was like, oh, okay, that's an easy way to gain some points. And then he found out that Rome was happy with that too. So even better, he found out this was actually a pretty good tactic. And so this is what's going on. And then we see that Agrippa executes the apostle James. Luke tells us that in verse 2. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And, and again, Luke's just kind of putting it out there for us to be aware. Now, we need to understand which James this is. There's, there, there, there are several in, in scripture. This is not the brother of Jesus. This is James, the older brother of the apostle John, both sons of Zebedee. And James and John were among the first to be called as disciples of Jesus. They, they were known as the sons of thunder. And in the biblical record, they're almost always together. James and John. And, and these were the two, if you remember, who were asking Jesus about giving them the places of honor at his right hand and at his left hand when Jesus enters into his kingdom and then all the other disciples got mad at them and upset with them. Like, how dare you? Who do, why do you? Who do you guys think you are? Why would he choose you two and not us? You know? James, John, and Peter really made up the inner circle of Christ's disciples. And, and so when James and John had asked Jesus to give them places of honor when he enters his kingdom, Jesus responded and he said something. He said, you will drink my cup. And Jesus meant the cup of suffering. That he had to drink, that he knew was coming, that they didn't even fully understand yet. And yet he's telling them, you're going to have to drink this cup. You're asking to have me on the right hand and the left hand of my kingdom. I'm not, that's not for me to grant, it's for the father to grant, but let me tell you what you are going to have. You're going to drink the cup that I, that I have to drink, this, this cup of suffering. And this was now what we're reading about here. This is James drinking of that cup, just as Jesus said. Luke tells us that James was killed with the sword. And this tells us that he was most likely beheaded. It also tells us that Agrippa and the Jews had probably accused him of false teaching. Leading people astray after false gods was, 
one of the penalties for that would be this kind of execution. And so here you have an apostle, a follower of Christ, probably getting martyred and killed for actually being a false teacher, yet he was not. He was actually teaching the truth. Isn't that a lesson that we can also learn from in today's world? And also, sometimes we can gloss over the humanity of of these texts. But this must have been a tremendous loss for John, his brother. And to the rest of the church. He was the first apostle executed for his faith. This is the only time in the New Testament that we're told of an apostle being executed. And, and so this is a pretty, big, uh, a pretty big event that Luke is telling us about. And the church must be shaken by this. You could imagine, James has been killed. What's going to happen next? Yeah, the gospel may be spreading in Antioch, but here in Jerusalem, an apostle, our friend, has just been executed. And then we move on, Luke moves on and tells us that Agrippa has Peter arrested. You see in verses 3, 4, and 5, when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he's talking about the execution of James. It's like when he says, hey, that, that went over well. Let's, have, let's arrest Peter. And this was during the days of unleavened bread. He seized him, put him in prison, and delivered him over to the squads of soldiers. Agrippa sees that the execution of James pleased the people, and being the shrewd politician that he was, he's like, okay, let's arrest Peter. This was Peter's third time arrested. He was arrested in chapter 4. He was arrested in chapter 5, and now he's arrested again. I mean, Peter's a criminal. Like, he's a known criminal in Jerusalem. I was thinking about this and just realizing, could you imagine Peter's resume applying for a pastoral job? (laughs) No one would hire him. Denied Jesus three times. Jesus called me Satan once. Let's not talk about that. And oh, by the way, I have a record. I've been arrested three times. Yet he was doing exactly what God wanted him to be doing. Tells us something also about what it looks like to live faithfully. Luke tells us that this happened during the days of unleavened bread. He's referring to the feast celebration following Passover. So Agrippa had Peter arrested, put into prison. And he did that because he couldn't really have a trial or an execution at that time during Passover. And uh, once all the festivities were over, Agrippa then would have Peter brought out and then executed as well. One of the things you got to keep note of when you're reading accounts like this is what is being done by the Jewish leaders and their soldiers and what's being done by the Romans. Because the Romans are not beheld at all to Jewish tradition, but the Jewish leaders are. And that's why they're following the rules of Passover. So they don't want to do anything. And that's precisely why the Jewish leaders handed Jesus over to the Romans. Because they couldn't do what the Romans could. 
And so you kind of see, and again, these are all tied up in history, which makes these, uh, these accounts so real and true. So Luke tells us that there were four squads of soldiers, a squad of soldiers for each watch of the night, and they would work in shifts. They'd come in shifts. Two soldiers would literally be chained to Peter. Two others would then stand guard at the door. Now, Peter had escaped before. So, so they knew this, you know, they knew that, that an angel literally took him out before. So they wanted to make sure that they didn't probably believe it was an angel. They just probably thought somebody messed up. So we're going to make sure this doesn't happen again. Now imagine again, take us back to the church. Imagine the sorrow of this Jerusalem church. It's Passover. Only, only a few years ago, not that long ago, Jesus was arrested, tried, crucified during that time you could imagine that those this this festival again now brings back those thoughts beloved james one of the inner circle disciples brother to john was already executed john himself he's still in mourning the church is in mourning there's a famine going on and peter has just been arrested it doesn't look good This church would have been in deep hurt, deep sorrow. They were not yet even fully recovered from what happened to James. And now the apostle Peter is arrested. He's in jail and they knew he's only being held until the Passover is over. And then he will be brought out and executed. It was only a matter of time. And then Luke continues on and tells us that the church prays for Peter. Look at verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Luke tells us that the church was an earnest prayer for Peter. That word there, earnest, in, in the Greek really has a, has a meaning of straining. It was like this straining type of, of prayer. But Luke does more than just tell us that they were praying. He writes this in a very specific way. He is distinguishing one event from the other. You notice how he wrote this in verse 5. Peter was kept in prison, but. So there's one thing happening. He's kept in prison, but earnest prayer was made for him. And, and, and the way Luke writes this, is he, he's very specific about certain things. Prayer to who? To God. Not just any prayer, not praying to saints, not praying to the universe, not praying to the powers that be, not praying to the earth, but praying to God. And who was doing the praying? The church, the hurting church. This church is in pain, in sorrow, even in their pain, even in their grief, the church gathered to pray. That can be a tendency sometimes in those exact moments to avoid the gathering. The church during the pain, the mourning, the suffering gathered to pray. The ecclesia, ecclesia. They gathered and they prayed and they prayed to God. And you could imagine that some in the church may have had their faith shaken when James died. 
Some are probably looking at the apostle John and they're brokenhearted to see this strong apostle in such grief. Maybe they didn't even want to pray. Maybe they didn't feel like praying. But what did they do? They gathered and they prayed. Agrippa, he brought the sword. The church responded with prayer. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 and 4, for though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. They were battling Satan with spiritual weaponry. They weren't resorting to human, fleshly attempts. They were going to God and using their spiritual weaponry prayer. Then Luke moves on and tells us Peter is rescued miraculously. Look at verse six. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. So the first thing Luke does is he sets the stage for us. Uh, Luke is a great writer. The way he writes narrative, and and it's very intentional. So the very night before Agrippa planned to bring him out, Luke wants us to know that. The the very night before, before he's going to be executed, uh, Luke is laying out the details. And he's saying, Peter is sleeping between two soldiers bound with chains, and then two others are at the door. So Luke wants us, he wants his readers to know the reality of the situation. That's why he's setting it up the way that he is. What is he setting up for us? Well, he's telling us something. Luke is saying something. He's saying Peter is under secure guard. He's really doing what what the Hollywood movies do, right? When when you're watching like an action movie and and they're talking about a place they got to get into and they spend like 10 to 15 minutes telling you how they can't get in because of all the things, you know, because it has like laser beams that shoot from satellites in space and it'll kill you if you if you go through or the floor opens up and you, you fall, in, you know, into hot lava or something like that. And you're like, okay, we can get past all that. And then you watch the movie to see how they do it. Well, this is kind of what he's doing here. He's setting up, this is a secure situation, but I'm going to tell you what happens. But the difference here is this is a very real situation. There's nothing fiction about this. And, and here's another question that I have. How exactly is Peter sleeping? How? <laughs> He's sleeping. He's chained to two soldiers. He's scheduled to be tried and executed the next day. And he is asleep. I mean, he... He didn't, I don't know, he didn't have access to melatonin or (laughs) something like that. Somehow he's at peace. Somehow he's at peace. This is not the same guy that denied Jesus to a servant girl. It's not the same. So what happens next? Verses 7 and 8, an angel is sent from heaven and appears next to Peter. Just appears A light shines. God is light. 
Jesus is the light of the world. None of that is surprising. His presence is made and there's light. The angel literally had to strike Peter to wake him up. That word in the Greek is, and if you see the different Bible translations, you'll see strike. It wasn't, you know, tapped him on the shoulder. wasn't poked him. It, you know, it was like, hey, you know, like get up. Talk about a deep sleeper. And then the other thing I thought about is why isn't he praying? He should be praying like all night. There's so many parts to this that sometimes just don't add up the way we would kind of write the story. But God is the one writing this story. The angel told Peter to get up quickly. He said, get dressed, put on your sandals. He literally instructed Peter how to get dressed. (laughs) Goes again to show maybe just the state of mind Peter was in. He was groggy, half awake, half maybe dreaming. And uh, Luke tells us in verse 9 that he didn't know if the angel was real. He thought it may have been a vision. And this isn't the first time he's had interaction with an angel. So incredible. Now, I want to just review quickly here the miraculous events uh, that, that happened because I think it's important for us to see that. First, we see an angel appears. So this is not a typical occurrence, not even for Peter. Chains fell off his hands. They fell off. They were not removed. They were not unlocked. Peter wasn't given a key, wasn't, you know, told the code. And, and here's how to do it. They fell off. He passed by the guards unnoticed. They they walked right past the guards who knew the penalty for allowing the prisoner to escape, which was their life. The iron gate opens by itself. The gate just opened. The the Greek word that's there is the word that we get, uh, our English word, automatic. Uh, So it, it opened automatically. A locked gate, an iron gate designed to keep people in on one side and out on the other just opens by itself. And then the angel disappears. The angel that appeared so suddenly disappears just as suddenly. Luke is making it very clear. This is all of God. God is at work. God is doing something. These are supernatural miracles of God. This is what we would refer to as the supernatural. Outside of the natural realm or laws within the natural realm being overcome by supernatural means. Like chains falling. Now I want you to notice the miraculous events here and and what they seem to resemble as we think about our own gospel um, and, and salvation. Notice here you have God's presence, chains removed. And notice, again, the chains removed, the people in the chains aren't removing the chains. Who's removing the chains? God. It's still the same today, right? It's still the same. We don't, we don't remove them. God removes them. Enemies are overcome. The very, the very enemies that are there to keep you in are overcome. You're, you're, you're walking right out. They can't stop you. The gates of captivity that kept you in are opened by God. And then we see rescue and salvation. 
even in this little miracle here, the, this, this small narrative, we, we're being reminded about the power of the gospel and what God continues to do even today in our world. And then from here, Luke tells us about Peter's realization. The Lord has rescued me. Verse 11, when Peter came to himself, he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. It's like he's contrasting. He knows the Jewish people have an expectation. I'm going to die tomorrow. I'm right now under the control of Herod and his soldiers. But now I'm sure that the Lord has done this. The Lord has sent his angel. The Lord has rescued me from the hand of Herod and everything that the Jewish people were expecting. This is all of God. Now I want to pick up, we're going to stop there in the text and we're going to pick up in the text next week. I'm actually going to use, we're going to, we're going to look at this chapter over three weeks um, just to make sure that we have the time to, to dig into everything. But what I want to do now is just give us some, some truths to think about and consider from this text that we just looked at. And the first one is this, when, when Satan attacks, we should respond with faithful prayer. When Satan attacks, which he does, we should respond with faithful prayer. Again, the way Luke writes this, he wants us to see that the world and Satan attacks in one way, but we respond another way. Did you hear that? Like they, they, the enemy attacks in one way, we respond in another. They arrest, they falsely accuse, they make a mockery of justice, they lie, they kill, the church prays. It sounds like weakness, but it's not, it's strength. Luke presents this as the right response of the church. He doesn't present this as the wrong response. He presents it as the right response. They were doing what they should be doing. Now notice, the story doesn't say that, that you know, the apostles gathered and, and they were planning a breakout. You know, and Peter was going to, you know, he, he was just going to be surprised by the apostles showing up, overtaking the guards and, you know, having a great action movie. That's not what was happening. No, they were meeting to pray. They were meeting to ask the Lord to do what only the Lord can do. That's what we do when we pray, right? We're asking the Lord to do what only he can do. And we still need to do that today in our own lives, in your life. We need to continue in faith-filled prayer to God. We need to pray individually. We need to pray in groups. We need to pray as a church, and, 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 and which is why, you know, even if you've noticed, or maybe you, maybe you haven't, even in our worship services every week, we have numerous times of prayer. That's very intentional when we, when we pray in our services, because we want 
to direct your attention to God, and we want to continue to make it known that we are dependent on God. But we do not pray in an attempt to manipulate God. We don't pray in an attempt to manipulate God. We don't pray to try to get God to do what we want him to do. No, we pray to submit ourselves to God's plan and to God's purposes. And I think this will come out even more in the next two uh, points that I want to make for us. So remember, when Satan attacks, we should respond with faithful prayer. Second, another another truth for us to consider and think about is this. God can use martyrdom or rescue for gospel advancement. God can use martyrdom or rescue for gospel advancement. I titled this message, Tragedy and Rescue. I did that because this story starts with believers getting persecuted violently, culminating in the execution of one of the apostles, James. It was tragic that James died, right? That's a tragedy that he was, he was executed and killed. And it was glorious that Peter was rescued. And as Christians, we need, all of us, we need a theological foundation that allows for both of these to be used for gospel advancement. If your theology of God only allows God to rescue all the time. And if he doesn't, then you don't have a theological framework to understand God. That's a theological problem. We need a theological foundation that can look at a story like this and say both of these can be used by our God for gospel advancement. We can't, in our lives, we can't tell God what he can use in our life, and what he can't use. You know, we have a list, right, of the things that are gone on in our lives, our past, our future. We're like, God, you can use these things. I love when you use these things. And I, please don't use these things. Don't bring them up. I don't want to talk about them. The reality is this. God used both the death of James and the rescue of Peter. He used both for the advancement and the spread of his gospel. Because our God is sovereign and powerful and sovereign and powerful enough to use both. And our faith in him needs to be strong and deep enough to trust in that. If your faith in God is only strong enough and only deep enough to trust when he rescues, but when he doesn't, it falls apart, you're going to be facing a lot of times in your life where you're, not, you're going to be saying, why God? Why God? God was in control when Peter was rescued. But he was also in control when James was executed. Nothing changed. He's an unchanging God. The, the issue is we don't know how to understand it. We, we don't know how to process that. And that's why we need a strong theological foundation to stand upon, which must come from his word and how God has revealed himself. The third, the third point that I'd like for you to, uh, point of truth that I'd like for you to think about, and I think we'll continue on 
as we move, as move through this is that God does not promise explanations. He promises good purposes as you love and trust him. He doesn't promise explanations. He promises good purposes as you love and trust him rooted in Romans eight twenty eight, which is continually misapplied, misspoken and then misapplied. So here's the question I, wanna, I want you to think about. Why did James die and Peter get rescued? I'll give you advanced warning. It's one of the questions for those of you in community groups. Be, you can talk about that. Uh, let me step back from that question a little bit. If this entire message today, if this entire message was about God's rescue, let's just say we read through this chapter and I stood up here and I did a, mes- a message and a sermon on the rescue of God. And my whole point was to tell you God always rescues. And I focused the entire message on the re- rescue of Peter. And if you were sitting out there as a good Christian and a, and a solid student of the word, you'd look at the text and you'd go, but what about James? And you'd be right. I'd be missing something. Let me ask you this question. Do you think the church of Jerusalem prayed for James? I think they did. I wouldn't have any reason to think that they didn't. So maybe the prayer meeting for Peter was better than the prayer meeting for James. Maybe some of the people that blew off the prayer meeting for James came to the prayer meeting for Peter. That's why Peter was saved. You know, there are Christian books out there that will teach that's what prayer does. As if we're in control of what God does and not God himself. No. No, the church didn't pray better for Peter and worse for James. And that's why it happened the way that it did. Then why did Peter get rescued and James die? keep asking that, but I'm not answering it. Some of you are going, I've noticed. So are you ready for the answer? Here's the answer. I don't know. Only God knows. And here's the thing. Here's where I'm going. He doesn't owe me or any of us an explanation. And when we think he does, we have put ourselves in the place of God. And we're standing in front of God and we're saying, okay, explain. And that's not the place we want to be. God never promised us explanations, especially this side of eternity. But he did promise us that we can know. This is that Romans 8, 28 again. We can know. There's that word again. How many times have I brought you to that word or the text has brought us to that word? We can know that for those who love God, All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That's the text in context. Now, I don't see a promise for explanations in there. I see an exhortation for all of us to trust God. Here's Here's what Paul's writing there. If we really love him, Because that's where it starts. For those who love God. If If we love him, if we're called by him to be his child, 
according to his purposes. In other words, you're his child for his purposes to be accomplished in you. Then you can know something. You can know it. Really know it. Everything will work out for good. But here's the thing. Then we have to go to, well, what is good? Because we don't know what good is. We think we know what good is, but how could we be the the ones that define what is good? We have to trust him for that too. So we'll look at our lives and we'll see things and we'll say, that's bad. That's good. That's bad. That's good. That one I don't know yet. (laughs) Right? But we have to trust that God is the one who, who knows the things that have happened in our lives, gone on in our lives, what is good. James was called home by God. I mean, you could imagine his reunion with Jesus. Remember, James, when I told you you were going to drink of that cup? And there he was before the Lord, embracing, welcomed home. But God had more for Peter to do. In the end, that's what it was about. God God can be trusted because he was bringing one home and he had more to do for Peter. And he wanted the church to see this miracle. And so what we see here is we need faith, deep faith and trust, not explanations. We need faith, deep faith. And I hope, that can be, I hope that can be helpful to you in whatever it is that you may be facing or going through in your life. Because I am certain, I am sure that many of you are facing situations in your life where you're saying to God, why? And I want to encourage your faith in God today. Would you pray with me? And as we pray... I'm going to ask you, just where you are in your, in your seats there, let this be a moment just between you and God, just block out everything else that's going on around you. If there is something in your life that you're having difficulty trusting God with, and you know exactly what it is, I don't, God will bring it to you. You're having difficulty trusting God with this. In this moment that you have right now, in this quiet, don't, don't ask God for a, an explanation. Ask him to give you strong and deep faith in him through this. To root your faith deeper like roots that go down further into the ground in your God. And admit to him that you're having trouble with the why. Why? And ask him to help you trust him. Lord God, we thank you so much for your word and your truth. We thank you, God, that you are the one who is on the throne of our lives and that you can be trusted, Lord. Continue to work in us as we continue to give you praise and glory that you are due. 
Help us, Lord, to, to have the, the roots of our faith go down deep and our theological foundation to remain firm because of what we know and understand about our God. We give you the praise and the glory, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.